If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me by turning to the book of Mark, chapter 2. This morning we're studying verses 18 to 22. And our message is titled, When to Feast and When to Fast. Well, this past week we had some incredible weather, didn't we? Some might even say we had some baseball weather. Is anybody excited for baseball season? Okay, there's one person in the room. <laughs> okay, wow. You're going to totally miss this introduction then. <laughs> well, one of my favorite baseball movies of all time is a film called Moneyball. What a great baseball movie this is. The, the basic idea of this movie involves... A general manager of a major league baseball team, the Oakland A's, who have historically been really, really bad at winning. They don't ever win. And because of their lack of success, Billy Bean, the general manager of the team, is growing impatient. And he's starting to demand that some changes be made in the program. So that they try to turn the ship around and and have a, a winning program. So he goes to the seasoned scouts on staff, the the men who have been there for a long time, and he starts to enlist their ideas about ways in which they could change the program, change the culture, and see some more wins. But, But these guys don't have any answers. And in fact, they're a bit annoyed with him that he would even suggest that something need to be changed. But everything begins to change when Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, goes to another team, the Cleveland Indians, uh, seeking for some trade of players. And while he's sitting in in the office um, talking about trade with players, uh, he noticed a rather insignificant individual in the corner that each time he said, hey, we'll trade you this guy for this guy and this plus money, each time he would make those recommendations, this rather insignificant-looking individual would shake his head no shake his head no, would shake his head no, and then he would go and report to the general manager of the, of the Indians. No, that's not a good trade. That's not a good trade. Well, following the meeting, Billy Bean seeks this guy out, finds him, and he goes and finds him in a set of cubicles, buried in some cubicles, surrounded by some other low-paid staff members, and he starts drilling him with questions. Who are you? Why do they listen to you? Why did you say no to the trade for Garcia? Well, Peter Brand, this guy, this rather insignificant individual who's in this meeting, goes on to tell Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, that the way that general managers are currently running their baseball teams is archaic. It's outdated. It's in need of a change. The system is broken, he says. In fact, he says, you guys are all asking the wrong questions, and therefore you're coming to the wrong answers. So instead of following the recommendation of scouts, Peter Brand says, you should be following the analytics to build teams. Instead of following the recommendations of scouts to identify talent, You should be following the numbers to pick up people for a winning team. Well, that might not sound like groundbreaking news to you, 
but it certainly was to baseball at that time. He was suggesting, this guy, first year out of college, first job out of college, not athletic looking at all, is suggesting to a general manager of a rather insignificant baseball team that they flip the entire historic game on its head. He was suggesting a complete overhaul of the system. How radical. Well, as groundbreaking as Peter Brand's suggestion was, it was like a raindrop in the ocean compared to the universe-shaking news that Jesus teaches us this morning. Peter Brand's suggested change changed a great American sport. But Jesus changes human history. He changes every age and every culture for all of time. And through a question about fasting, Jesus teaches us something fundamental about the Christian faith. In this text, we realize that Jesus didn't come to patch up our religious practices. He came to radically redefine how we relate to God. He's, <laughs> he's not coming to make minor tweaks to an established religious tradition. He's turning the entire world upside down. How exciting is this? Friend, are you ready to hear about this? Well, let's turn our attention to the text, to read the text, which is the best part of the message this morning, the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. The people came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear is made and no one puts new wine into old wine skins if he does the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins but the new wine is for fresh wine skins amen let's let's go to the lord quickly in prayer to ask for his help Father, we thank you for your word, and I ask simply this morning that you would please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Present in Jesus' name, amen. Our first point this morning is no fair. We're hungry. Verse 18, the grumbling concerns that we encounter from the two groups of people, starting in verse 
18, are set up by the growling sounds coming forth from their hungry bellies. Why are they hungry? Well, they're hungry because Mark says that they were fasting. And these two groups, the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees, they are not two groups of people that you usually hear in the same sentence together. They're not two groups of people that usually run together. They're not two groups of people that usually unite to talk about religious things. They are typically like oil and water, (laughs) not mixing well. In fact, just a few weeks before this joint intervention with Jesus, with a question about fasting, Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3, Verse 7 tells us that while John the Baptist was baptizing people in the River Jordan, he looks up and he sees a group of Pharisees making their way towards him. And he stops everything that he's doing and he says to the crowd, says to the group of Pharisees coming, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? You see, these weren't two groups of people who usually united behind religious conviction. They weren't teaming up on regular occasions. They weren't good gospel partners. But they were on this occasion. Why were they teaming up now? Well, both of these groups were fasting from food as a sign of their religious devotion to God. And they expected any serious spiritual person to be doing the same. Fasting from food. So let's, let's not just assume that we know what that even is, fasting from food. So let's back up and redefine and define fasting. The definition I have for you is fasting is the willing avoidance of food for a designated period of time for spiritual purposes. Throughout the Old Testament, there are so many examples of God's people fasting for spiritual purposes. For instance, Ezra led God's people to fast, entreating the Lord to protect them as they journeyed their way from their exile in Babylon back to Jerusalem. Esther called God's people to fast so that she might have God's favor, so that she might have favor as she walked into King Xerxes' court unannounced, which was usually a death sentence. She's asking for God's favor. David and his men fasted as a sign of their grief when Saul died. The city of Nineveh, that wicked city that Jonah reluctantly went to, to preach repentance, that city, they committed a fast. They issued a citywide fast as a way to show God in response to the preaching, as a way to show God their sorrow for sin and their devotedness to Him, as a way to show repentance. The entire history of fasting throughout all of God's people's lives. The entire Old Testament history of fasting 
culminates that and points to this climactic moment when these two groups of people question Jesus' disciples about why they aren't fasting. If this is what God's people do, then why aren't your disciples fasting, Jesus? Well, it leads to our second point. He's here. It's time to feast. Verses 19 and 20. One of the things that still leaves me in awe as I read the gospel is Jesus' ability to answer questions. (laughs) You know this from experience. Sometimes people come to me and ask me questions, and some of those questions set me on my heels, and I give a mediocre answer, and only hours later do I realize, does it come to me, what I should have said (laughs) in that moment to the answer to that question. I think these moments are so frustrating. But not Jesus. He's never sat back on his heels. He's never surprised by a question. And his answer to this very simple question is so deep that we are still enamored by it 2,000 years later. Instead of giving a straight-laced answer such as, well, listen, the reason my disciples aren't fasting is because the whole entire history of fasting was actually pointing to me, and so therefore there's no need for them to fast because I'm here, I'm the reason why you fasted in all of history, but I'm here. But instead of giving that straight-laced answer, he uses imagery to unlock the imagination of the human mind and leave us an unforgettable picture. He says this in verse 19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. What does this mean? Well, we need to think about it from their point of view, from the original reader's point of view, from the original context of this conversation. A Jewish wedding was a massive celebration. It's a huge celebration. Following the wedding ceremony, the festivities would begin and they would not conclude for an entire week. Our tradition and our culture is that following the wedding ceremony, the, new, the newlywed couple is whisked away And they go to their honeymoon immediately. But in this context and in the Jewish tradition, that was not the situation. In fact, following the ceremony, their front door was wide open. And for the entire week, their friends and family who had come for the wedding would stop by unannounced. And the party would start again. The celebration from the moments following the ceremony would start again. It was, for most people, the happiest weeks, the happiest week of their lives. So now, do you see what Jesus is saying to these groups? He's saying that during this short window of time, while he is on earth, 
It would be ludicrous. It would be unthinkable. It would be unimaginable for people to fast. You don't fast at the reception party. You party at the reception party. You celebrate at the reception party. You dance at the reception party. Jesus' arrival was the realization of all of God's people's fasting from the beginning of time. So he's saying, party and celebrate and dance and feast because I'm here. The Savior of the world, the promised Messiah who has come to live and die in the place of guilty and damned sinners has arrived. But before his disciples have time to pull out the confetti and put on the party hats, he says a surprising sentence in verse 20. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. I imagine the disciples looking at one another at this point and saying, taken away? That sort of sounds abrupt. That even has a tone of sounding corrupt. Well, Jesus was alluding to his death for the first time in this gospel. He was drawing attention to the horrific death that he would face as he would die as our substitute on the cross where he would would bear the righteous wrath of God in our place and for our sins so that all who turn from their sins could find the forgiveness of sins in him. And following that event of his death on that cross and that historic moment, the hinge moment of all of history, he says following that moment, his disciples will fast. Well, the days which he is referring to are the days in which you and I are living in. So, friend, it's appropriate for me to pause for a second and ask you this question in light of this text. How goes it with your fasting? How goes it with your spiritual discipline of fasting? Maybe you're someone who's new to the faith and you have no idea where to even start when it comes to fasting. Or maybe you're uh, a seasoned Christian and walking with the Lord for a long time, but you've never fasted. Or maybe you're here this morning and you regularly fast. Wherever we are in our relationship with the Lord, what should be very, very clear from this text is that regular, this, regular, this practice of fasting should be a regular part of our life with the Lord, of our walk with the Lord. And get this connection. I can't get over how cool... The timing of our study through this passage is to our current calendar. Wednesday was the first day of Lent. Now, in case you don't know, when I say Lent, I'm not talking about 
the unwanted cotton fabric that you find getting hung up in your belly button on occasion. But, but Lent, Lent is the Christian tradition of using the 40 days leading up to Easter as an opportunity to fast. The, the willing avoidance of food for a designated period of time for spiritual purposes. Lent is the Christian tradition of using the 40 days leading up to Easter to prepare your heart for the cross, to prepare your heart for that, that glorious Sunday. The Sunday that we celebrate on Easter is the Sunday that Jesus was resurrected from the tomb, resurrected from the dead. So fasting is biblically defined as an avoidance of food. Christians throughout church history have used Lent as an opportunity to fast from other things that they feel are distracting them from their devotion to God. For example, things like someone's phone or television or even sometimes hobbies. Whatever it is, when we fast in faith... Not as an attempt to earn God's love, but as a response of God's love demonstrated in Christ and Him crucified. John Piper says that fasting adds an exclamation point to the end of our prayers. Fasting adds an exclamation point to the end of our prayers. So friend, let me ask you a question. Do you desire... A deeper relationship, a deeper intimacy with your Savior. Well, fasting adds an exclamation point to your prayer for more intimacy in your relationship with Christ. Are you brokenhearted because of a, of a particular sin in your life? A habitual sin that you, you can't get over. A sin that continues to reoccur in your life. Well, fasting adds an exclamation point to your prayers asking the, for the Holy Spirit's power to apply the gospel that you might overcome besetting sin. Are you feeling lost? And find yourself asking the Lord for guidance, asking the Lord, Lord, what is your will for my life? What do you want me to do? What is your plan for my life? Is that where you are? If that's where you are, then fasting adds an exclamation point to the end of your prayers, your cries out to the Lord. Lord, what do you want to do with my life? What doors do you want to open for me? What plan do you have for me? Listen, listen, listen. This is a sudden thought, but I think it's appropriate. We, we all the time, we're, I don't know why we do this. We have like spiritual gift questionnaires, spiritual gift surveys. You don't know your spiritual gift? Take this man-made set of questions and we're going to have you. Have you tried fasting? Have you tried fast? I mean, serious. I mean, we just like, we just live this American way, like, oh, we got to figure this thing out. On, like, what are we doing? <laughs> Try fasting. <laughs> so, Lord, 
what spiritual gifts have you given me? And then fast. Fast about it. It adds an exclamation point to your prayers. Don't look to Matt Gray to tell you you're, I'm not God. Religious people in our country, we're not God. He's God and he speaks. He still speaks. He still speaks. Do you get that? He's alive. We don't have to come up with these little systems to think, oh, we're going to hear from him. Oh, he still speaks. Are you, are you, Lord, what do you want to do with my life? Have you fallen on your face? Then ask him, Lord, show me. Show me. Speak to me. Tell me. What do you want to do with my life? And then add an exclamation point to that prayer by fasting. Do that first. And if that doesn't work, which it will, then take a spiritual, spiritual gifts questionnaire. It would be so awkward if there was someone here this morning who's like, actually, I invented that. <laughs> I'm trying not to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. Like, that's not totally, I'm not saying that's ungodly. But it is totally wrong to go there first. It is totally wrong for that to be our first instinct. We act like God just isn't real sometimes. No, he's very alive. Now, listen, here's an observation. If you're thinking about fasting and you're like overwhelmed and like, does this mean I have to start with 40 days of fasting from food? Because I'm going to always advocate to fast from food first. One, because our country idolizes food. And it's a super hard thing for us to fast from food. It like really hurts. And two, biblically speaking, that is what fasting is. I'm not limiting fasting to that throughout church history. Other people have fasted, as I said a minute ago, from other things. That's totally fine. Uh, but don't give yourself that out so quickly. Fast, fast from food, if you can. If you, if you have a diet thing that makes you don't feel that obligation. But if you can Try fasting from food. And I'm not saying right out of the gate, listen, you got to fast for 40 days from food. <laughs> It'll be the last time I saw you. <laughs> don't, assume that, don't, assume, don't assume that if you did that, it just all of a sudden your exclamation point behind your prayers would get bigger. It'd be like a giant emoji at the end of your prayers. Now listen, just start with one 24-hour day of fasting from food. And each time that your belly growls, it's going to growl if you've never fasted. It's going to growl the moment you wake up. Each time it growls, pray again for the purpose in which you're fasting. Your stomach growling gives you a quick reminder of why, why it is that you're hungry, and you're hungry because you're fasting. And then that serves to remind you, oh, yeah, I need to pray. And you can just pray right there by faith in your mind. Father, please, please tell me, what do you want to do with my life? That's all you have to do, and keep going. Another reminder is that on the days of our prayer meeting day, it has been the practice of our church for a couple years to call for a corporate fast. And so if you're like, man, I, I want to fast, but I really don't want to fast alone, then think about using the, the Thursday that we have for prayer meeting 
Use that as an opportunity to fast, knowing that you're not alone. And if you're looking, man, I don't, I don't really know what to fast for. I would love for you to fast and say, Lord, please save souls in our city. Please use our church to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ and added to this body. I'd love for that to be the exclamation point at the end of that prayer. Well, that leads to our third point this morning. The sweet taste of the new covenant. Verses 21-22. In these two verses, Jesus provides us with two visible illustrations to communicate the message that he has not come to patch up our religious practices, but he has come to radically redefine how we relate to God. <laughs> Check this out. The first illustration that Jesus tells us in verse 21 is how no one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. Because if he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, the worse tear is made. Now, even if you're like me, and you have zero experience sewing, you should be able to understand and picture what Jesus is saying here. But what is the connection spiritually? I see the picture in my mind of a garment and an old, ripping off there in a bigger tear, but what is the connection spiritually? Well, the connection here is how Jesus is not simply coming, how Jesus did not come simply to fix a hole in the old covenant. He's come to usher in an entirely new covenant. Friends, Jesus changes everything. Think about this. Under the old covenant, God's people had to travel to the temple to meet with him. Jesus didn't come to patch up the temple. He came to purify his people so that we would become the temple, the very dwelling place of God through the person of the Holy Spirit. Here's another example. Under the old covenant, following the sacrificial system, God's people had to offer up animals to atone for their sins. It is so far removed from our culture that it's hard for us to even imagine that. Imagine your favorite pet. You got that pet. You take care of that pet all for the purpose of every single year taking that pet to be sacrificed for the atonement of your sins. That's what God's people had to do. Jesus didn't come into the world to patch up the existing sacrificial system. He came as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system and was himself the spotless lamb who spilt his own blood for the remission and the forgiveness of our sins. 
Here's another example. Under the old covenant, the do's and the don'ts of the law were many. They were many so that God's people might see their sin and seeing their sin, see their great need for a Savior. Well, listen, Jesus didn't come in the new covenant to add more do's and don'ts to regulate our relationship with God. He came and said, I will perfectly obey the Father down to the T and offer myself up as the perfect righteous sacrifice in your place so that I can then credit to your account my righteousness and that you'll live your life under grace. Grace, under grace, under grace, under grace, under grace, the undeserved favor of God. That's where you live your life. Our existence is lived under that identity, under the undeserved favor of God. The second illustration he gives us in verse 22 is a picture communicating a similar idea. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, wineskins at this time, they were made from the hide of an animal. So you can imagine some sort of a leather-type material. And over time, that, that leathery material would dry out and would begin to crack. And, and if you were to put new wine into that old, dried, cracked wineskin, new wine still fermenting, still expanding, it would burst that skin all the wine would dump out in your, and the skin would be lost as well. So again, this is a, a powerful picture. The human attempt to fix ourselves, to clean up our lives, and to obey our way into a right relationship with God is like an old wineskin that's cracked and dried out. It will not work. You don't pour a little bit of Jesus into that old broken system. You throw the whole thing out. You throw it all away. That's what we said in the the call to worship from Psalm 50, right? You stop trying to pay your way out of the debt. You throw the whole thing out. We can't add a little bit of our good works plus a little bit of Jesus in order to make us a little bit of a good Christian. No, we give up. <laughs> we give up on ourselves entirely. And we, we, we stopped attempting to do anything good enough to earn God's love. And we finally rest in the fact that Jesus did everything necessary to accomplish my salvation. He did everything necessary to purchase and accomplish my salvation. And he wants to freely give it to me. Freely give me the salvation. But first, I have to throw out the old garment and the old wineskin. 
I have to throw it out. I can't keep it in my home. I have to throw it out. You have to be done with it once and for all. Once and for all, you have to say, this will not work. I cannot add a little bit of Jesus to a little bit of my good works to work my way back up. No, you have to totally throw it all out. To be completely done with self-righteousness. Only then, only then, when your hands are finally empty and no longer trying to fix something that is broken, can you see that something new has come? (laughs) Only then, when you finally throw out that old broken attempt to make yourself right with God, only then can you see that something new has come. Something altogether together better. Only then can you see your real need for Jesus. Listen, friend. Do you see your need for Jesus? Do you see your real need for Jesus? As we prepare to close... May this final picture move our affections to celebrate the radically redefined relationship with God that Jesus alone makes possible for us. If the wedding guests, from Jesus' illustration, if the wedding guests are expected to celebrate with the groom, how much more should we celebrate who are not invited as guest to the marriage supper of the Lamb, but invited as sons and daughters to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you see that? How much more, if they're celebrating, they're the guest of the wedding reception. If Jesus says they celebrate, they're just the guest. They receive an invitation in the mail. They know this person through hearsay. If they're celebrating, if they're dancing five nights in a row, they're knocking on the front door of the newlywed couple saying, let us in, we're here to party. If they're celebrating as guests, how much more should you celebrate? Not as a guest at the marriage supper of the Lamb, but as a son of God through Christ, as a daughter of God through Christ. That's your seat at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Guests sit over here. Family sits over here. That won't be the case in heaven. Oh, this is a family reunion at the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. If you're seated at the table, if you're at that supper, if you're a believer, that's all it requires is that you come to faith in Christ, that you repent of your sin and trust in Him alone, and all of a sudden, there's a chair for you. Come to find out that chair's been there since the foundations of the world. God had predestined for you to sit in that chair. And he made that possible by sending and sacrificing his son, by electing you before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And at the fullness of time, Christ died for your sins and you were perfectly made right in him, sanctified once and for all. You are adopted into the family of God. Chairs pulled back. This is the family table. You are my son in Christ. You are my daughter 
in Christ. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. You are my family. Take a seat. If the guests are celebrating at that table, ought you not to celebrate more as a family member? Ought I not celebrate more? The answer is yes, infinitely more. It ought to be obviously more. It ought to be observably more so than the guest at the table. It ought to be, oh, that guy's lost it. That guy's crazy. What's he singing about all the time? What's he happy about all the time? I'm, I'm, I have a seat at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. My name is engraved on the back of that chair. That's amazing. Jesus didn't come to patch up <laughs> religious practices. He came to radically redefine how we relate to God. Thank you so much, Jesus. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's the appropriate response, is to thank him. So let's go in prayer as we close. <laughs> Jesus, thank you so much that you would do that for me, that you would die in my place. All of it was pointing to you. <laughs> All of it was pointing to you. Thank you that we live in the new covenant. That we live in the age where we know the forgiveness of our sins we know that once and for all they were laid upon Christ they were laid upon your shoulders Christ they were laid on your shoulders all my sins, my sins today, my sins yesterday my sins I'm aware of, my sins I'm not aware of all of them were laid on Christ nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus not even my besetting sin not my growling, not my anger, not my lack of discipline, nothing. Thank you, Jesus, for that sweet assurance. We love you. We would love to be the kind of Christians that look like family members and not guests. That's really hard to do, Lord, in this fallen world. So would you fill us with the Spirit? that we would look like that, Lord, for a lost and dying world. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.